0: I'm, I'm spitting angry. I'm like a tornado of anger swirling about. My heart rate is dangerously high right now. I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. I hope you all like that intro quote, courtesy of Will Ferrell and the movie Kicking and Screaming. Laughter really is the best medicine. As long as you're not in the middle of a rage episode, right? This week, we're going to continue building our safe house. There is no room for rage in this house, and I know that the intense feelings of anger that accompany borderline personality disorder are troubling for so many of us. I talked a lot in previous episodes about how we can be tyrants. The rage and intense anger that we experience is often a catalyst for tyrannical behavior. I received a lot of listener questions about this topic, so I want to take the time today to talk all about anger. This will be a two-part series, actually. This week, we're going to dive into types of anger and how anger works in the brain. Next week, I will talk about strategies you can use to let go of that rage and why these strategies work. So what is anger? Well, Anger is one of two emotional responses that can be triggered by something in the environment that our brains perceive to be a threat. The other response is fear. Okay, so how do we know if we will experience fear or anger if there's a threat in our environment? Well, that all depends on your perception. If you think that you can handle the threat, you'll have an anger response. But if the threat seems too scary or too big, you'll have a fear response. If a kitten jumped on the table to get those cookies you just baked, for example, you'd be pretty angry. But if a bear was on the table getting those cookies, you'd be pretty scared, I'm betting. (laughs) In the kitten example, you would handle the threat. Maybe you'd squirt the kitten with a water bottle, or scold it, or place it on the floor. With a bear, well... (laughs) You wouldn't squirt the bear with a water bottle, right? You'd want to run away or avoid the threat in some way. Now, this is really important. Everyone's interpretation of the world around them is unique to their own personal experiences and their beliefs. Their experiences and their beliefs combined determine whether or not they're going to have a fear response or an anger response, and whether or not the thing in their environment that's happening in front of them is going to be perceived as a threat. If you've been listening each week, then you know that a certain someone, myself, has a certain video where that person pees their pants at a dance recital. My mom's mentioning that video, just mentioning it when I was a teen, was something I perceived to be a threat. But I believed I could handle it so I would get angry and even enraged and I would confront her. Now, most of this processing is done at an unconscious level. It's not like I'm thinking, okay, mom mentions the video threat okay that's a threat can i handle my mother well it's not something that i'm consciously aware of it just happens because our ability to to detect threats in the environment is something that we've been able to do as a species for a long time modern day threats are much different than say escaping a mountain lion or a rattlesnake before there were cars planes and the internet (laughs) and the switch (laughs) you get the idea Now, another important thing as we go on through this episode is that when I say the word anger, I am talking about all emotional responses related to anger, like being upset, being irritated, annoyed, exasperated, mad, furious, irate, and rageful, all of those. This is important. I won't be distinguishing between anger and rage. Just know that I am speaking of all of the above. Also, keep in mind that we have hyperbolic temperaments, so what someone without BPD considers angering, we could easily become enraged by. There are three myths about anger that I want to discuss now. These come from the book Taming the Beast. Myth one is that it's healthy to vent anger. Venting anger during a coaching or therapy session is one exception, though in everyday life, venting anger is not productive. Why? Well, for one, venting anger increases how angry you actually are. And second, this increase in anger interferes with your ability to be able to think clearly, logically, and rationally. Anger needs to be acted on, not acted out. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that anger is, a sim- is simply a message from your brain that you're perceiving a threat. Rather than lashing out or acting out, we want to learn to identify the threat and develop a plan to overcome that threat. Venting about strong emotions reduces our ability to think rationally, and it causes us to engage in all kinds of self-destructive and inappropriate behaviors. It also interferes with our ability to meet our needs effectively or to deal with that threat. Think of the last time you were in a rage episode. What happened when it was over? Usually clients tell me that they ruined everything or something along those lines. Rage episodes happen when we perceive a threat and then act out, and we don't take that time to develop a plan. All right, myth number two, responding to anger with aggression is instinctual and can't be helped. So some books out there are saying that aggression is just what happens when we're angry. To take it a step further, there are people out there saying that borderline personality disorder individuals have trait anger, which means that the rage episodes that we experience are just part of who we are. Myth, wrong, no way. Well, I refuse to believe that. That would mean that we are just inherently tyrannical in a way, right? I'm not okay with that. While emotions are part of our genetic makeup, the specific emotion that we experience is based on how we interpret the event. We could interpret our needs as being met and have positive emotions, our needs as being threatened and have negative emotions, or we could experience a loss and feel sad or depressed. More importantly, this is important to remember, most behaviors are learned. They are just things we have been doing over and over and over again, or that we were taught or modeled by our early childhood caregivers. In any given situation, think about it. Someone could get angry and rageful. Another person could become passive-aggressive and take digs and another person could experience anxiety and depression and take that energy inward. If we look at our rage episodes and say, well, you know what? That's how it is. I have BPD. I was born that way. Well, that's just not true. And unfortunately, it becomes an excuse for behavior that is inappropriate. Let's take this dance video I've been telling you guys about, for example. If this were brought up to me today, I would say, okay, mom. And I would probably laugh and I would go, let's watch it. Because I know exactly who she is and what she's capable of and who I am. And I've had a lot of practice determining which threats I need to pay attention to and which threats I can turn the volume down on. The way I behaved when I was angry was learned. The same goes for you guys listening. All right. Let's talk about myth number three. Myth number three. It's normal to become angry when frustrated, helpless, or confused. Okay. No, it's not normal to become angry as your only reaction when you're frustrated, helpless, or confused. So each of these situations could trigger anger, but it could also trigger fear or sadness or no emotion at all. Remember, That the emotion you experience depends on how you interpret the event. If you're feeling frustrated, a need or desire of yours isn't being met, right? If you feel helpless, that's when you want to do something or like you need something, but you can't get it. So let's say you're sick and you can't leave the house and you wanted your partner to go to the grocery store for you. You find out when they get home that they forgot, Your ability to get what you needed at the store isn't met, which is frustrating. You may also feel helpless because you can't go to the store yourself. Many people do become angry at a situation like this, but other people don't. It depends on their experiences. Again, it's how you interpret the event that determines what emotion is triggered. We have BPD, right? So maybe we see the action of not going to the store as a threat. We become angry because it means that our partner didn't think about us, doesn't love us, and doesn't care about us. So we get angry and lash out. That's our experience. It is also possible to say, well, you forgot and I'm disappointed. But I understand that people forget things and that doesn't mean you forgot about me specifically. You just forgot to go to the store. And maybe... This person's experience with people hasn't been so negative, so they respond and ask their partner to go back to the store without anger. What about confusion? Okay, well, confusion happens when you don't understand something. The idea of giving your loved one space comes to mind here. Space is a hard concept for many people with BPD it's hard to wrap your mind around emotional space and not wrap it into being rejected or broken up with or thinking of the dissolution of the relationship. So when your partner asks for space or your favorite host, you may become angry and say that they don't love you, they don't care about you, when you just don't understand what they mean by space. The confusion you feel is warranted, that's for sure, but the emotional reaction to that feeling comes from your past experiences. You can respond with anger, but someone else may respond with anxiety, or if you haven't had that experience with space, you might just agree to take some time away. So confusion, frustration, and helplessness can all trigger anger, but they can also trigger other emotions as well, depending on your past experiences and beliefs. Are you tired of feeling frustrated, resentful, or disconnected from your family, friends, and partner? Thrive Mind Body LLC Mindset Coaching and Counseling can help you. Visit us on the web at thriveonlinecounseling.com. Again, that's thriveonlinecounseling.com. And receive 10% off your first session pack with coupon code THRIVE10. See you then. Let's talk about how anger can be expressed now. So we can express anger in four ways. Number one is that you can suppress your anger and do nothing as you try to ignore it. So think about times where like something has pissed you off or made you upset, but you couldn't speak on it. So maybe it wasn't someone who was really close to you that caused you to be angry. It was something at work or in a professional setting or a public setting. And so maybe you didn't say anything and you just kind of suppressed it. But later on the day, you start feeling run down, like you have a headache or a stomach ache because you start feeling the physical manifestations of suppressing that anger. Another way that anger can be expressed is by turning it inward and, you know, being mean to yourself or beating yourself up. So for example, maybe you have a first date coming up and the person you're supposed to go on a date with cancels. So you think, well, he'll never like me, or she's way too good for me anyway. No one will ever want to date me. I'm just a huge mess up. I'm a failure. I'm just ugly. And you just start belittling yourself. A third way we can express our anger is by directing it towards someone or something else that really has nothing to do with the situation, right? So let's say... Well, there's a threat that's too dangerous that you really don't feel comfortable confronting, but it's not necessarily something you would have a fear response for like an abusive or aggressive father. Let's say you go and you visit your parents as an adult and you get into an argument with your father and he's an aggressive guy. So he's really mean to you, but you don't confront him. You don't say anything. But when you see your partner again, you start laying into them about everything they've ever done wrong and criticizing them instead. So that would be directing that anger towards your father to, onto your partner. The fourth response we could have is to direct our anger at the actual threat. Now, unfortunately, this can be done in appropriate ways, but it can also be done in inappropriate, aggressive way that damages the relationship and actually keeps us from getting what we want. So let me break down appropriate and inappropriate anger. Well, I hope this is helpful for you so far. Just know that a lot of the stuff that we talk about or that I'm talking about on the podcast, they're not things that come naturally to us. I never knew that there was an appropriate way to have an anger episode. I just thought I got pissed, and it was a trigger, and it was just sort of set off, and I couldn't control it. So if you bring these things into your awareness, you can create choice, and you can choose your responses and your reactions. So anger is considered appropriate when a real threat exists, when how angry you are makes sense given the situation you're in. Let's take that grocery store example. If you start Calling your partner names and just belittling your partner because they forgot to go to the store, that's pretty over the top and it doesn't match the situation. Appropriate anger reduces the threat with the least amount of harm to yourself and to the people around you. Inappropriate anger exists when there is no logical reason to become angry. Maybe you get mad because you bought a Hershey's bar. And the bar was broken instead of being in like one whole sheet, right? But the candy bar is the same and it tastes the same whether or not it's broken or in a sheet. You weren't really cheated out of your candy bar. So if you're getting more than just slightly disappointed, it would be pretty illogical. The same thing goes for intensity of anger. So inappropriate anger is really intense, too intense for the situation. Let's say you put money in the vending machine but you don't get anything out of the machine. We've all been there, right? You'll get annoyed, maybe even get a little angry because you lost money. But if you're gonna become enraged, that'd be inappropriate. Inappropriate actions also accompany inappropriate anger. Let's say you get angry at your professor because they gave you a B instead of a C. And you start to recall a time when they let you out of class for no reason, or you start to think about all the mistakes they've ever made. So then you write a letter to the department chair, and you tell the department chair every mistake that your professor made to try to ruin their career. The action doesn't match the situation, and it causes unnecessary harm to your professor. So those are in a, examples of inappropriate anger which i think that inappropriate anger is what we could, would consider a rage episode right over the top intense anger that really doesn't match the situation sometimes people have physical conditions that cause them to have like rage episodes so sometimes it isn't controllable but that's for like people with traumatic brain injuries so why else would we have inappropriate anger Well, inappropriate, intense anger reactions are caused usually in early childhood by early childhood learning and us modeling the anger and emotional reactions and responses of our early childhood caregivers. It's also exacerbated by irrational thoughts or negative core beliefs that we have when we get older. So thinking negative things about yourself or the world around you. Like, if you think that everyone's going to leave you or reject you, then somebody making a mistake and forgetting to go to the grocery store or canceling a date because they're sick, it would make you think, you would immediately start thinking, like, everybody leaves me, no one likes me, this person doesn't care about me, because of your experiences, right? So in order to prevent these rage episodes, we have to recognize the way that anger works in the brain, which we've talked about today. Then... We want to figure out what in our history triggers the type of reaction we have to a given situation. And you also want to minimize those negative core beliefs and irrational thoughts and replace that with new information and new behaviors. If your go-to negative thought is, I ruin everything and I'm a failure, I used to have journals with that written over and over and over again. I ruin everything. I'm a ruiner. I'm a failure. And so I just thought I would think that way forever. But I had to break that pattern of behavior by replacing it with new thoughts, with rational thoughts. So to say that I ruin everything is pretty extreme. I would write instead, I make mistakes. I'm human. I'm not a failure. I do the best at everything that I try. And then I actually tried to do that. So that's part of this process of breaking yourself free from these rage episodes. So if you know your triggers, then you create these new beliefs and new patterns of behavior, and then a beautiful thing happens. You can choose your response and solution and not just act out your anger, which often stews and turns into a rage episode. Remember, between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space is our ability to choose. That's that Viktor Frankl quote. But if we don't bring into our awareness why we get angry, what the causes of it are, then we're not able to create the space to make a different choice. And we feel like we can't prevent these rage episodes, when in fact, that's a myth and we totally can. So if we look at that video example, I could choose to get angry when my mom wants everyone to watch my pee pants recital video, or I can choose to let her be exactly who she is I could choose to get pissed off when Jay forgets something, or I can choose to be a loyal and forgiving person, understanding that if he forgot something, it's because everyone makes mistakes, and it's definitely not a personal attack on me. Alright, we'll continue this chat next week, but first, Q&A time. Alright, time for this week's Q&A. So I get a lot of questions about what treatment works or which treatment. I will always say first, of course, work with me. (laughs) I have a few more spots for coaching and counseling open as people come and go. And I have a sliding scale fee. But of course, I want you to work with me. (laughs) I want all of you guys to work with me because I want to protect people that come to me from help for help from receiving bad treatment or from not being told the truth. Though I respect that there are other great options out there, and I can't save the world, so to speak. So if you have asked me what treatment works, here's my response. Remember that everything that I address on this podcast is hard to do. This isn't easy stuff, folks. I get questions about what treatment works, what therapy works, which treatment people should choose, and why. Whether or not DBT is worth their time, whether or not CBT is worth their time, from schema therapy to DBT to MBT to all the behavioral therapies or BTs, (laughs) or to the way I do things in my own counseling and coaching practice and here on this podcast. But honestly, none of them work unless you work at them. It only works if you work it. You've heard that, right? Remember I said that the only way around your problem is straight through them? You can circle a problem and circle it and circle it for years, trying treatment after treatment after treatment. Check this out. I had a client once who believed that they had a DUI in their hometown. So for those of you that don't know what a DUI is, it's, it means drinking under the influence. So you would have gotten pulled over by a police officer when you were um, you had been drinking. So... They got a DUI in their hometown, which is a few hours north of the local city here. And they believed to be hiding in the city, like hiding from the warrant for their DUI. And they did that for 20 years. When this individual finally stopped hiding and turned themselves in, the DUI was thrown out because the police hadn't gotten consent to do a blood alcohol test. This person ran around that problem for 20 years. What's my point? Choose a treatment and then put your all into it. Anything you choose to put your mind to and do the work in works. That's how life goes. Practice good reps. Remember that depending on your age, you will have to battle years of practicing bad reps. I'm 38 years old. I started this journey years ago. Towards the end of the hardest part, I had to remember I had 30 years of practicing being a good borderline under my belt. I was great at it. I was an awesome borderline. 30 years. That's a long time. So to expect perfection and to expect my problem to be solved by a treatment with some letters behind it, without me doing any real work outside of therapy or coaching or whatever, it's failed logic. Every day, we must wake up and choose recovery. Not just every day, actually. Every minute of every day is a battle for some of us. And every minute that you choose to do whatever treatment it is that you embark on is a win. Pick one. The research states that DBT, because DBT has been the most researched treatment for borderline personality disorder, right? Remember from previous episodes, research is only as good as what it's studying and how much of it it's studying and how often and how long it's been studied so dialectical behavioral therapy has been heavily researched in the treatment for of borderline personality disorder that's really the one thing that researchers had to go off of because it was working for people so yeah it works for a lot of people it doesn't work for a lot of people and Like I had told you in previous episodes, there's components of DBT that are lacking, that new research is telling us that need to be incorporated, like this idea of having cognitive empathy. So a combination of treatments could even work. But again, doesn't matter. Pick one. You have to start somewhere. If you do DBT and you find a good program and you can afford it, just start there. And if you get to the end of the program after you've made to the made the commitment and you're like, man, this didn't do anything, then do another one. But you're never gonna know if it works for you just going off of research. This is the same research that told us years ago that we would never recover from borderline personality disorder. That was wrong all those years ago. So every day we may, we must wake up and choose recovery. And. Remember, again, every minute that you choose to do whatever treatment it is, then you embark on is a win. Take the time, commit to a treatment or to a process, and then practice it daily, moment to moment. This is self-discipline. Remember that moral compass work? Self-discipline should be on your moral compass. Self-discipline is defined as the ability to make yourself do what you know you should do when you should do it whether you feel like it or not disciplined people know what has to be done and then they do it they don't put it off until later they don't allow themselves to be easily taken off track and most importantly people who have self-discipline prioritize and focus on being self-disciplined with activities that move them towards their goals so choosing a treatment not giving up doing it every day until it's considered to be over and working hard at it. So let's say you aren't self-disciplined. You're like, Rose, I don't even know who who those people are. Well, why aren't you trying to become self-disciplined, is my question back to you. Do you think that people that have self-discipline are somehow better than you? No. Nope. That's not going to work. It's another failed logic. They aren't. Maybe they were just taught it at an earlier age, and I'm betting those of you who think you can't be disciplined weren't taught it. I know I wasn't taught self-discipline. I can tell you that right now. I was taught that if I whined enough or lied to manipulate a situation, that I would get what I want, and that's what I learned to do. So don't do that anymore, if that resonates with you. Practice self-discipline, which means committing to a treatment. Any treatment is a start and not giving up when it gets hard. Committing to a treatment and not giving up when it gets hard. That's the answer to what treatment works. Now, for those of you who are fans of DBT, think about it. Good DBT programs ask you to commit. You have to sign a contract. Six months. Some of them do a year of treatment, right? self-discipline. It's built into the treatment model. All right, there's my rant on treatment. Start somewhere, commit to it, call me if you need to, I would love to work with you. If you're confused about a treatment, try it out, commit to it. Okay, thanks for listening. That was from Borderline and Beautiful. A production of Thrive Mind Body LLC, online coaching that helps frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at thriveonlinecounseling.com. If you like this show, remember you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or any app that you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message.